it's summer. And you know what that means? It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth Gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. I was thinking about that old adage, if you're under 30 and not a liberal, you have no heart. If you're over 30 and not a conservative, you have no brain. What do you think of it? I would say that's an American way of looking at it (laughs) because in our sense, a liberal and a conservative are not opposed. Uh, I would consider myself in many ways a liberal conservative. I have found, though, if if you look at this in the broad, uh, I probably ended up, as I said, very close to where I started. Mm -hmm. So I've done a full circle of Mm -hmm. a kind. That's Martin Wolf, chief economics commentator at the Financial Times. Martin is one of the most influential economics journalists in the world. And he's been reflecting recently on his political opinions over the last 50 plus years. He's realized that his mind has changed. He thinks society is more important and pure individualism is less productive than he used to. So I don't fit into this adage. Uh, mm-hmm. I uh, perhaps I've lived long enough that there's a third stage that mm-hmm. uh, so after 30 you become a conservative and <laughs> then after you're 60 you realize that both are right some of the time and the, the key to making sense of the world is working out which one is right when. Martin was an active labor supporter throughout his young adulthood. As he studied economics that shifted. He started thinking that a stable democracy needs a market economy. So he saw markets as these self-correcting machines that could always balance out supply with demand. But over the years, his thoughts on that have changed too. We are learning all the time. And if I'm not learning and developing what I think as I'm doing what I do, then I'm useless. Uh, That's why I distinguish. My core values haven't changed, but... Uh, If somebody says to me, well, economics suggested A, B, and C, now that we look at the evidence, we realize that A, B, and C aren't true. So what are the better way of thinking about it? That's a living subject. That's a living analysis. I would like to be part of the living. Today, I talk with Martin about how to form a worldview and then how to say, actually, I think differently now. Then, Courtney Weaver joins to tell me about a parenting craze on Instagram called Gentle Parenting. There's no punishments, there's no bribery, and the question is whether gentle parenting is helpful, whether it's harmful, or honestly, whether it's even possible. This is FT Weekend. I'm Lila Raptopoulos. Martin, hi, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. A few weeks ago, you were in the New York newsroom and we were talking and you said that over the years you found that your your politics has changed, your opinions have changed, that you felt that you've changed your mind. And I found that really interesting. And I'm curious if you could tell me about that, what you meant by that. The question you asked is a very good one. And so the important point is I started studying economics in uh, my uh, 21st year, Mm -hmm. 
uh, at Oxford, uh, and I started my professional career in the World Bank in 1971. So I've been doing this in different ways, in different environments for half a century, which is absurd. <laughs> and one advantage of this is I've got a fair amount of experience and I've seen a lot, which is very, very helpful. And I shudder to think what I thought 50 years ago, because it was basically what I'd been taught in university. I've become convinced that we needed to rely more on markets. Martin held this view throughout the 1980s as Margaret Thatcher and Ronald Reagan were implementing policies that freed markets from government regulation, lowered taxes, broke down unions. This was around the time he joined the FT, in 1987. So I was pretty convinced of the case for moving towards markets, um, uh, globalization, as it's now called, integration through trade, trade-led development, uh, privatization, properly done. Uh, so I was very sympathetic to the broad thrust of policymaking in the 80s and 90s in those directions. And I thought they would work better. And in some places, they clearly did, there's no doubt. But that was my view of the how the world would work. Over the last 25 years, probably, or actually more, about 27 years, starting with the financial crises, particularly the financial crisis in the mid-90s, the Asian financial crisis, I changed my views on how these would work um, in a number of dimensions. I'm curious about um, the moment when you realize you've changed your mind. Does it feel, is this gradual? Was it sort of sudden and revelatory? Was it changing global policy or research, personal life experience? That's very interesting. And I'm not entirely sure. Well, big crises, uh, if you're writing about them, yeah. force you to work out very, very quickly what you think. Yeah. Uh, and if you're forced to think, to work out very, very quickly what you think, and it turns out that it changes what you thought last week or two weeks ago or three weeks ago, then you change your minds very, very quickly. Uh, there have been two big moments. The first was the Asian financial crisis and the second was the global financial crisis, 2007 to 2009. It became obvious to me that the financial system couldn't be viewed simply in this sort of market construct way. Um, it suffered from radical systemic instabilities, which were built into the way our financial system had developed. You know, we'd had more than 100 banking crises, and pretty obvious there was a big problem. But in August, September of 2007, I came to the conclusion, and by the end of that year, it was obvious that the wheels had come off the system. In 2007, as the housing bubble burst, millions of Americans found themselves owing more than their homes were worth. An unregulated financial market brought the entire global banking system to almost complete collapse. And Martin was proven wrong. The market had not balanced out supply and demand. Well, if you're broadly pro-market and you find that the entire financial system, the core financial system, has to be rescued by the state, then you, if you don't change your mind about pretty fundamental things, you're not thinking, it yeah. seems to me. And if you're thinking and responding, you have to say, well... We've had to do this. If we have to do that, then we have to rethink the relations between markets and state big time. Martin had also held this belief for years that economics and politics were separate. 
that we could treat economic policy and the stability of our political system as essentially independent. And I no longer think that is the case, and I've just completed a book which is called The Crisis of Democratic Capitalism for this reason. What happened to change his mind there was 2016. Britain chose Brexit, and Donald Trump was elected president of the United States. It made him think... Something very strange is happening to our politics. Does that force me to reconsider my assumption that the economic track and the political track are in some sense independent, that our basic core democratic values are robust? I came to the conclusion that you couldn't assume that. It was a mistake which I'd made uh, throughout my life, really, that the assumption that our democratic political systems in core democracies like Britain and America, but also elsewhere, that these were robust under all circumstances. The answer is obviously they weren't. And therefore, I had to bring politics and economics back much closer together in the way I think about things than I did before. Martin, one of the reasons I was excited to have you on to talk about this is because I think a lot of... A lot of people feel that we need to have read everything, learned everything to be confident about having an opinion. Um, it's important, of course, to be informed, but to know everything is impossible. Um, so I'd love to hear you walk us through how you go about forming an opinion that you feel is meaningful, um, especially because you have to sort of put that opinion into the world very publicly. Well, it obviously, it takes a certain amount of arrogance. <laughs> and one wouldn't do this job if one weren't, because it would be impossible for you to do it. You couldn't write anything if you're not prepared to take a risk of being wrong. In pretty obvious ways, uh, you're, you're doing nothing. Uh, the way I think about how my ideas have developed there are several elements in that. So I, I first made a distinction between my values and my opinions. What I mean by values is what fundamentally matters to me. I'm sort of pretty passionately committed to a broadly defined liberal in the European sense, liberal, pro-democratic viewpoint, starting with the fundamental assumptions of the importance of consent in society, of um, personal liberty and the protection of personal liberty, uh, of the fundamental equality of status and worth of all human beings, as well as a profound commitment to the core enlightenment values. If you have these core values, there are quite a number of different political positions you can take and different ways you can analyze particular situations. Mm -hmm. And those then depend on how you think the world actually works. As someone who remains curious and open to new things in the world informing your worldview, you know, do you have any advice or hopes about how others should receive or could receive information and remain open to? I'm not perfectly open, to put it mildly. There are, <laughs> well, there are some views I reject pretty clearly. Yeah. I'm not very open to the worldview of Vladimir Putin sure. or Xi Jinping. I understand, I think, both, but I reject them pretty profoundly. I think one of the most interesting issues recently is 
how far demands for equality of respect interact with demands for freedom of speech. The, mm -hmm. the, one of the big issues among the younger generation, and I haven't decided what I think about that, which is why I've not written about it. Right. So there are some really interesting conundrums. How do other people do it? I think a lot of it is to have the self-confidence to have a view mm -hmm. and express the view, and at the same time to have the self-confidence to say, yeah, that's what I thought two weeks ago or 20 years ago, but it doesn't really make sense to me anymore. Mm. So you have these two aspects of self-confidence, self-confidence in expressing your views and self-confidence in changing them. If you don't have it, I think you should fake it. <laughs> I think a human being should feel entitled to have and express views. Uh, I think they should feel an obligation to make them as well supported as they can be and not ignore evidence and arguments on the other side. I was going to ask, you know, some people would argue that changing your mind is not a sign of open-mindedness, but a sign of intellectual weakness. What do you say to that? Well, I suppose if you have formed your views by the age of 20 and you have no reason ever to change them <laughs> in the light of experience, there are two possibilities. One is that you are a bona fide genius <laughs> who has worked out everything important about the world in childhood and early adulthood, in which case I admire you immeasurably, <laughs> but I'm not you. And the other possibility is you're paying no attention, in which case, in my view, you're not really alive, <laughs> certainly not intellectually or emotionally alive. And it's equally obvious that no human being knows everything. Uh, only the, a divinity knows everything uh, that I think we can all agree upon, and none of us is divine. Right. Well, I've always thought that the big problem of being a divine God would be unimaginable boredom. I mean, you'd know <laughs> everything. What would you do with yourself for eternity? <laughs> but anyway, that's not my problem. The, uh, never will be. So I'm perfectly comfortable with the idea that once you reach wisdom, you realize you didn't know that much, uh, as Socrates constantly said, and you all knowledge is provisional, but there are certain core values on both sides, if you properly understand them, that have value. Yeah. Thank you so much, Martin. This was an honor. It's a great pleasure. Well, that's a conversation I've never had. Those are questions that nobody has ever asked me, and I would never have considered um, being foolish enough to answer them if it hadn't been that you were so charming. Oh, thank you. Courtney, hi. Thank you for being on the show. Thanks for having me. So tell me about gentle parenting. <laughs> like, what is the premise? How does it work? I know. Yeah, this is my older daughter. Oh. Uh, I think her father is going to come get her in one second. <laughs> hi. You want to say hi to Lila? No. <laughs> You're getting to see our parenting in real time. <laughs> so the question was, what is, what is gentle parenting? That's my colleague, Courtney Weaver, and her daughter, Maya. 
Courtney is the FT's U.S. political correspondent in Washington. And a few months before the pandemic, she became a mom. She found herself having to learn about parenting remotely during lockdown. As was the case for many of us, help found her when she was scrolling one day on Instagram. And it was more than just a couple tips on getting your kid to sleep. It was a whole movement. Gentle parenting is kind of this umbrella term, and it's come to encompass a lot of kind of different styles of parenting. Some people call it respectful parenting. Some people call it gentle parenting. There's no bribery. There's no timeouts. The basic concept is, you know, little children have big feelings, and you're supposed to let them have these big feelings as opposed to teaching them how to bottle up these feelings inside of them. Courtney, I just spent a week with my sisters (laughs) and their little kids, and the idea that a parent could never get mad at their kid and it would work, like, seems really hard. It is really hard. When you talk to people who are real acolytes of this movement, a lot of them will say, you know, I'm the adult, you know, it's my job to kind of be strong and be this kind of oasis of calm so that it kind of Mm -hmm. helps my kids calm down too. And I should just say this up front, you know, I've definitely been tried their, a lot of their techniques out and a lot of them I actually find are, are helpful, but I think it's, um, what becomes problematic is this idea that, like you just mentioned, that you could kind of be this, this figure of calm this whole time. And that, you know, by putting so much emphasis on the child's feelings that it's harder for the adult to experience their own feelings too. So Courtney wrote about it for the FT Weekend magazine, and it was hugely popular. I've put the link in the show notes. She highlights the work of one of the movement's leaders, Dr. Becky Kennedy. Dr. Becky, as she's known, is a clinical psychologist. And she was initially interested in adults, really. She was wondering whether how they were parented has affected how they parent. She kind of thought that all these older adults were having these symptoms in adulthood. um, That she kind of wondered, I wonder if, you know, we had done different things with these people when they were children. Um, if they would have a kind of the same psychological problems that they had now. So, mm. you know, for kind of high achieving millennials, maybe as children, we were told to kind of bottle up our feelings, you know, and, you know, there's a lot of emphasis on being polite and not kind of like expressing our feelings. So Dr. Becky started posting parenting advice on Instagram during the pandemic and her account exploded. She now has 1.2 million followers and a company called Good Inside where you can get digital lessons for $20 a month. Here's a clip from her Instagram. So start to notice when a tantrum is building, when frustration starts, and follow these steps. Name a feeling, empathize and validate a feeling, and permit the feeling. This is what that would sound like. Oh, you can't figure out yet how that puzzle piece fits into here. Oh, that's so frustrating. I'm naming it. You know, it's funny. It's like, you know, now they're running these very successful businesses. And I feel like cynically, you can kind of think, okay, so they're profiting off of using Instagram speak kind of (laughs) uh, to make you feel like you're doing something wrong, which just adds more pressure to the parent. And um, you quoted this person who called these companies parenting spanks, (laughs) like the underwear that makes you look thinner. Right. Um, And they said that the recipe of it is manufacture an insecurity and then offer a quick fix for it and then profit. Yeah. Yeah, I'm curious what you think about that. Yeah, I I thought that was interesting. I mean, um, I I actually got a response from Dr. Becky after the article came out and she thought a lot of the criticism against her was unfair. She was saying basically businesses are allowed, allowed to hire McKinsey consultants, you know, 
athletes are allowed to hire, you know, trainers or, you know, sports consultants, like why do, why do parents not deserve parenting coaches? And, That's fair. you know, why do mothers not deserve this? Um, and I don't think, and I don't think anyone is saying that people don't deserve coaches with parenting. It just feels like there's so many different ways to do it. You know, there's not one kind of blanket philosophy mm-hmm. that's going to work for everybody. Um, and, you know, a lot of kids will be raised under gentle parenting and turn out great. And some will turn out not great. Likewise, with any other philosophy. Courtney thinks that the problem is less about Dr. Becky and more about social media. I mean, think about it. You know, when my mother had a problem with me, she'd actively pull out Dr. Spock's baby and childcare book. She'd look it up and then she'd put it away. But if you're a parent today, whenever you're scrolling passively, that content just keeps coming and coming to you. With a lot of these Instagram parenting experts, they're creating new content every day. So every day when you go on Instagram, there's a new example of something that you shouldn't be doing that maybe you've been doing. This combination of parents being on social media and parents working more, Courtney thinks that it's led to a lot of guilt-led parenting. The other thing that struck me about it, even though in some ways it's like a progressive way to think, is that it's super time-consuming. Is gentle parenting kind of a privilege? Totally. I think a lot of the movement presupposes that you have this time to be really intensive and, you know, one-on-one on your child at all moments, you know. I think there's something about this particular generation. I think you have more parents who are working um, two jobs, who have two careers than a lot of previous generations. Um, And I think for a lot of parents, I think this creates a lot of guilt, to be honest. Um, And I think, you know, parents feel maybe that they don't have enough time for their children or they don't uh, aren't spending as much time with their children as they think their parents had, whether or not that's Mm -hmm. actually true. And it's interesting when you actually look at these studies basically indicating that a lot of working mothers actually spend more time being with their children than stay-at-home housewives did in the 1950s, you know? And, wow. Um, and I, I do kind of wonder if because because people are working these jobs, they actually feel more guilt about, you know, not being home with their children all the time or feeling like their children are missing out somehow and wanting to compensate. It seems a little like this movement is very reliant on mothers um, and on women still. And um, I'm curious about if that's true. Does that is that just because mothers are still often primary caretakers? Or um, do you think that's inherent in the movement? Interestingly, for the article, I did speak to a couple, two different women, actually, and both of them were um, stay at home mothers. And they they were saying how both of them kind of like, you know, when the children were napping or at nighttime, they would be kind of scrolling through Instagram. They basically were treating this as their jobs, trying to find new experts to follow, new you know, advice they should put into practice, kind of trying to optimize their parenting. Oh, wow. That's um, interesting. But this kind of this culture of self-improvement, I think, you know, across the board and not just in parenting, obviously targets women. Yeah. You're so incentivized to do that now. Exactly. Exactly. You know, it's like, it feels like in some respects, parenting has just become another realm of this, which sure. um, if, if that, you know, sparks joy in you, I think that's great. But for a lot of people, I think it doesn't. And if you don't have the means to do this or the resources, that definitely does not make you a bad parent. All this said, parenting is a challenge and people are looking for help. Courtney says she has personally adopted some of the gentle parenting strategies and they have helped. And for some parents, they've helped even more. I actually found that the people 
it was most helpful for were actually parents whose kids had serious, serious issues, you know, not, not kind of run of the mill toddler issues. One parent uh, who has a trans daughter who's four, and basically by the time the child was age two, the child was already saying, I don't, I'm not, I don't feel like a boy. I'm a girl. I'm a girl. Yeah. Um, and, and now they, now, now she is a she. And, you know, the parents were saying how the child used to have these huge, huge tantrums, you know, mm-hmm. hours long. The child would kind of injure, injure herself. And um, instead of kind of punishing the child for these kind of violent outbursts, they kind of let the child like, ex- you know, feel their feelings. And I think if you really are, in that situation, having an online community like this is so helpful. Yeah. Even if every generation identifies what it thinks is the right way to parent, there just isn't one right way. One child development expert told Courtney that actually what kids need is pretty basic. They want to feel loved. They want to feel safe. Um, You know, they want to have a strong attachment to at least one caregiver, whether that's the mother or the father you know, a grandmother, um, and they, they just want to know, and they kind of want to know what to expect, basically. They want to know that dinner is going to be on the table and, and that sort of thing. And, I mean, you don't really need, need to read a book to, to know that, right? Yeah. So, Courtney, my last question is just where you landed on this. Um, did you come away from this reporting feeling reassured about your own parenting? <laughs> <laughs> I think it, in some ways it did actually make me feel better about my own parenting just because... I think it's so easy when you're kind of in this this world to just kind of overthink it. And the article kind of forced me in a way to step back and and realize, you know, I think most of us are good enough parents mm-hmm. and I hopefully fall in that camp. <laughs> um, and that relaxing a bit more and just kind of letting things kind of fall as they may actually makes everything better. Courtney, thank you so much for being on the show. Thank you for having me. That's the show this week. Thank you for listening to FT Weekend, the podcast from the Financial Times. We actually want to involve you in something. So in a few weeks, we are speaking with my colleague Esther Bintliff about feedback. There's this whole field of study on how hard it is to accept feedback, how to give difficult feedback, how to handle criticism and rejection. And we want your questions. So if you have a personal quandary on giving or receiving feedback, Esther will answer it on the show. So send it along. We can use your name or keep you anonymous. Just email us at ftweekendpodcast at ft.com. That email address is in the show notes. Next week, we have this incredible story that should be made a movie of why professional tennis is a hotbed of cheating and match fixing. And then FT columnist Stephen Bush comes on to talk about the opposite of virtue signaling in politics. It's something called vice signaling. A special shout out this week to my colleague, Madison Derbyshire, who's the one who initially said, you know what I would love to hear Martin talk about? Changing his mind. Thanks, Madison. You can always keep in touch with us on social media. The show is on Twitter at FT Weekend Pod, and I am on Instagram and Twitter at Lila Rapp. I'm always asking questions and posting stuff that feeds into the show on my Instagram. Links to everything mentioned today are in the show notes, alongside a link to the best offers available on a subscription to the FT 
That includes 50% off a digital subscription. That's really good. And an excellent deal on FT Weekend in print. I'm biased, but I get FT Weekend in print every Saturday, and it is a true delight. Those offers are at ft.com slash weekendpodcast. Make sure to use that link. I am Lila Raptopoulos, and here's my talented team. Katya Kamkova is our senior producer. Lulu Smith is our assistant producer. Our sound engineers are Breen Turner and Sam Javinko with original music by Metaphor Music. Neve Rowe is our intern. Zoe Sullivan is our contributing producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. And thanks go, as always, to Cheryl Brumley and Renee Kaplan. Have a wonderful weekend, and we'll find each other again next week. It's summer, and you know what that means. It's time for a Plymouth gin and tonic. So grab yourself a glass and some ice. Start with a pourer of Plymouth gin, which is distilled using a blend of seven botanicals. Add in some tonic, then finish with a slice of orange. Now that is the perfect gin and tonic. Plymouth gin, distilled with care and craft in England since 1793. Hi, this is Matt and Sean from Two Black Guys with good credit from a local business to a global corporation. Partnering with Bank of America gives your operation access to exclusive digital tools, award-winning insights and business solutions so powerful you'll make every move matter. Visit bankofamerica.com slash banking for business to learn more. What would you like the power to do? Bank of America, N.A., copyright 2024. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum.